Welcome to the Pathfinders podcast by VWS. I'm your host, Jenny Stojkovic. Join me in intimate conversations with some of the world's most incredible women leaders in the future of food, fashion, beauty, and technology. We'll dive into their stories, how they built their companies, and how they've dedicated their lives to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Join us on our journey as we endeavor into this brave new future. You won't believe what's coming next. Hi, everyone. This is Jenny Stojkovic, the founder of BWS. We're excited to have you for another Pathfinders conversation. Today, we have the amazing Courtney Blagrove, who is the founder of Whipped Urban Dessert Lab. And I promise you that that name alone, that should be getting your taste buds going. Um, she is building some incredible, incredible stuff uh, with soft serve ice cream that is made out of oats. So Courtney, welcome. Thank you for having me. Awesome. How are you doing today? Great. Great. We're just getting off of the high of the VWS summit. Of course, that was amazing to see women from all across the world get together and talk about like basically the plant-based community and also how we are as women, we're literally driving the force of it. Oh, absolutely. Did you know that there were so many women in the space? No, I did not. Especially because like right now we kind of focus on the United States, but to see that globally, this is a movement that's happening and women are the behind it is amazing. Yeah, it's so incredible. Even myself, as we were putting together the content, I just kept finding more and more women creating companies. <laughs> and we had women that created companies after we did the original, you know, outreach to the founders to add our founder chat. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> well, here's a new company that emerged. In yes, it's week. like a domino effect, them. which is great because now we like people are coming out and also people are also like, you know what, I can start my business too. I, so I feel like that summit really inspired other people to start their own businesses. Yeah, that's the point of it, right? We want to support women on their path to build a kinder, more sustainable world. And we want to meet you where yeah. you're at. And so the point of today's conversation, that's actually a good jumping off point, is we want to learn more about your story and how you decided to get into the space. You've had a very, very interesting career that I'd love to get into. We're a little atypical, I think. You're a PhD. <laughs> you're technically doctor, yes. but you don't go by doctor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Settle it for me. When you were a PhD, should you use doctor or should you put PhD at the end? I think it depends on the person. For me, I don't expect for people to necessarily call me doctor. I mean, I put a whole lot of hard work in it, but <laughs> as long as, you know, the PhD is behind my name, I know the research I did. I know like the, the work, the hard work I put into it. And now I'm translating that into a uh, business. So that's good enough for me. Awesome. Okay. So now that we've settled a PhD, Courtney, <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself. So where did you grow up and what was your life like? How did you get interested in food? Were you interested in food from a young age? Yeah. So I was actually born in New York, but then I moved to Florida. Uh, I grew up in a single parent household. I was raised by my mom. And so from a very early age, I already had a very strong person to look up to. And so I used all the things that my mom taught me and like that's being translated into what I am doing today. And that includes like education, relationships, how I treat people. All of that is important. All of that encompass is what made me how I am today. That's something that we've noticed quite a bit with the founders we've spoken to is definitely the presence of a strong woman role model. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you think that it was unique where you grew up to have that situation? Yes, it's definitely unique, especially in the community that I was raised in. It was predominantly Caucasian. So even growing up, I was always the minority. And so even from a young age, I was groomed in that environment. So I know what it's like to be the minority. And again, in business, we're, I'm dealing with the same type of issues. <laughs> So it definitely has prepared me for the obstacles that I'm facing now. Where in Florida? Spring Hill. So it's like, it's about 30 minutes north of Tampa. So we're not far. We're not far from Orlando too. It's like an hour from Orlando. So very close to like Disney. Okay. Were you a Disney kid? No, I wasn't. I was like, even it's kind of like when you grow up in Florida, you know, you have access to beaches. The the weather is nice, but at Disney, because I grew up there, it wasn't as big of a deal as if I feel like I lived in a different state and you're like, oh, I'm going to go to Disney. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. The Florida kid, my husband's a Florida kid as well. Oh, really? Totally different viewpoint of Disney, of, you know, the beaches. It's just like another day. Yes, that's exactly. Now I do, I still miss the warm weather because right now living in New York, it's so cold. So I miss the warm weather for sure. But yeah, growing up, it was kind of like, oh yeah, Disney. Yeah, Yeah, it's the house of mouse. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So what did your mom do? So she was a guidance counselor and even now she's like, and she still does like the social work now. So she was always into helping people. And I saw that as I grew up. Did you have anybody in your life that was an entrepreneur? Did you have anyone that started a company that you've maybe seen from an early age? Actually, no. (laughs) That's where we're very green. We didn't actually growing up, I didn't have someone who already started a business. And then I was able to see like some parents have people who started restaurants or anything like that. I actually didn't have that experience growing up, but I did have the experience of my mom was like, you know what, if that's what you want to do, you know, I'll give you the tools to do it and make sure that you have that passion and that drive for it. And then if you want that to be done, it will be done. So it was more like giving the steps. We were giving the steps and the background to achieve what we would wanted to do. That's well, with a guidance counselor as a mother, you must have just so much support, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So going into high school and did you do any sort of projects or kind of dip your toe into anything relating to food or relating to health or science? Yeah. So I probably started, I was really interested in uh, science fair. So I pretty much did science fairs from my elementary to high school, to high school age. And that really gave me the background of research and design. And that's really what propelled me to in my college years, I also ended up doing like scientific research. So growing up, I was involved in all these programs that helped groomed science, basically like groomed kids interested in science. So every summer, I was pretty much part of a program like that. And again, I was the only minority, but I think it was important for me to experience that. And that really groomed me for what I'm doing today. That must have been an interesting experience because that's a few layers of being the only one in the room because also being a young girl that is not part of the predominant majority like around you. What was that like? Did you face kind of a little bit of you don't belong here? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. But I'm glad like and even growing up, I was kind of like, I don't want to be a part of that program because I was feeling like I was the only one there. People, I would stuck out pretty much like a sore thumb. But now looking back at it, I was like, my mom was preparing me to deal with how the world sees us. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. But growing up, I definitely was very uncomfortable. And (laughs) of course, 
now that I'm older, it's like, it's when you're uncomfortable that you're able to, you know, shape and mold yourself and you're actually growing because if you're not comfortable now to me, I know that means like I'm stagnant, like something, (laughs) you know, is not happening. So of course, I think that is very important and I wouldn't have it any other way now. So (laughs) do you remember any times when you were younger and you were in some of those programs where you're kind of faced with those moments? Did you have any people that pushed back on you and really actively didn't want you to be a part of the group? Oh, yes. And I don't know if it was like, the thing is, I don't know if kids sometimes just do it not mindfully, but that does happen. And it's probably a result of the environment they're in that they think it's okay to say certain things. Yeah. So I don't know if they're mindfully doing it. But of course, as you grow into adults, you're expecting them like, oh, no, they thought about what they said, they mean what they said. And that's not because they're ignorant of you shouldn't be talking to that person in that manner. So it's something that I've had to deal with since I was little. Do you think the representation has changed in your field? You know, there's obviously been a big push to show women's influence in STEM, particularly Black women's influence in STEM in the last few years. Yes. Do you think it'll be different for the kids that come after you? I think it's a step in the right direction, but I do not think that it has changed much, especially even now. I think what happens is we have these times where it becomes a heightened topic and then people will start to talk about it, but then people kind of not get tired of it, but it kind of gets swept under the rug again. And then they're like, oh, I didn't know that was how you felt. Oh, I didn't know that was like that. And you bring it up again. And then people, it starts trending for, let's say like a month or two. And then you kind of hear about it. Not, you know, you don't hear about it anymore. So I do think it's one of those things where it's kind of like a roller coaster ride. But, and I think there's definitely still much more work to be done in that manner, because what happens is I feel like, especially as a black woman, when you do bring up something that you think has happened, a lot of the times we're made to feel like, oh, you shouldn't be playing the race card. Even if it actually has exactly to do with that, the person that you're probably addressing becomes uncomfortable and they're like, oh, you're playing the race card. That's not exactly how that was. When in actuality, and you have the evidence to back it up, but in actuality, that's exactly what's happening. And a lot of times it's a lot of microaggressions. So I think that what happens is people will be like, oh, well, I'm not like that. Like you see the police brutality where, you know, an African-American is killed. They're like, oh, well, I'm not like that. I'm not racist, but they don't understand that there's little microaggression things that happen that they're contributing to. It's like when I actually this happened probably like two months ago, I'll walk into a store and I'm automatically followed. It's like, that's the type of microaggressions that happen. It's like, you might not necessarily call someone a racist word, but your actions are proving that you're uncomfortable with me being there. And you have a stereotype that you are following. And even though that person may not be like that. So it's still happening. Yeah. It's so, you know, over the last summer, of course, people all of a sudden, you know, racial justice really kind of became a big hot topic. But even now in December, it seems to have largely been erased from the social narrative. Yes. So again, it's like not trending anymore. (laughs) It just seems like a lot of the actions that people took at the time, you know, they can be construed as probably performative at this point. Yes, exactly. And even in terms of the business and diversity, you see that they're like, oh, yes, we're going to commit to making sure that we have more diversity on our panel. And then it's silence after that. So yeah, it is. It's almost like it was a marketing gimmick for them to say that because they didn't want other people shunning them like, oh, that business isn't, you know, participating in something that we 
we're seeing an issue that is happening. So I do think a lot of times it's a marketing gimmick. Yeah. That's so unfortunate. It's just, there's so much work that needs to be done to take apart the systemic changes that we make, right? And yes. it's, it's, you can't just solve it overnight. Yes. And we can get more into this in a little bit, like the food system and just the way that funding, even in the plant-based space is there's a lot of those same challenges that are happening and we see it time and time again. Yes, of course. Um, so, okay, let's take it back to, so we're in Florida, we're in high school. Mm -hmm. Did you go to the same school that your mom was a counselor at? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Oh my gosh. How was that? That actually wasn't till later, probably elementary through middle school. She wasn't there, but high school, she actually received a job there. So that was great because I actually was able to start college courses earlier. So by the time I graduated high school, I already had my AA degree because there was a way where you're able to take college courses and then they count for credits towards your high school. So it's kind of like AP courses, I would say that's similar. And so because she was aware of that type of program, because she was a guidance counselor, I was able to participate in something like that. So even then, it's kind of like when people are aware of opportunities, it's like we are able to accept them. But if you're not aware of opportunities or you don't have connections, that's when, you know, there's certain issues that happen. And because my mom was a guidance counselor, I had the opportunity and I was also aware of it. And so I was able to take advantage of it. Yeah, that's a big part of VWS, a part of the, you know, the Pathfinder Summit that you referenced earlier was we're trying to create accessibility to this industry because so many things are just in the status quo yes. and those that are in the know are in the know and the same few hundred people just circle these industries, yes. much like <laughs> education, much, you know, it happens in so many different sectors and we're trying to break out of that so that everybody can be included. Yes. And that's amazing, like what you guys are doing, because right, as again, like you were saying, people now it's not trending anymore. And you're actually taking action and making sure like, no, this is still something that needs to be talked about. This is something that needs to be undone. And you're taking steps towards that, which I appreciate. So <laughs> and it won't. I mean, it's not going to happen. Over yes, it's not. Okay. So we're in Florida. You basically at this point, you have like a college diploma. You're 18. Yes. So where was the next stop on Courtney's journey? So next, then I went to University of Georgia. I majored in plant pathology, plant pathology slash horticulture, because I was really interested in plants, how they grow, you know, the genetics behind it. So that's where I did my undergraduate. Okay. Plant pathology. That just sounds like the most like, a vegan origin story of all time. You literally studied plants. Yes. <laughs> the Well, the diseases of plants, but yes, like how, like in terms of like farming, horticulture and how they get, how they obtain their disease. And if it's like systemic or is it from the type of products they're using to grow the plant? basically the background and the backstory of plants. Okay, so did you have any experience with like agriculture then as well? Yeah, there was some agriculture experience within, but it was more about the diseases of the plants. But you do, I did learn the background of agriculture and how people use certain soils to grow things and in terms of where plants grow, in terms of like, oh, the we have a lot of imports of plants in the United States. So we discussed more of that. I learned that, the research behind it, in terms of insect Insecticides used, everything that you can imagine. <laughs> okay, so are the insecticides and the things that we use in our food as bad as they seem? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I actually think it's sugar coated. <laughs> Even things that are considered or 
organic really? is kind of sugar coated. It is better than non organic in terms of like the things that are used, but it's more like the government. They have a basically a protocol to follow to make so things are considered, oh, this is organic, this is not organic. And basically, you can still use certain things, just as not up to the certain level and still it be considered organic. And that's with a lot of things in our food system as well. Ooh, okay. So it sounds like at this point, you started to see the food system a little bit more in the journey. Yes. <laughs> and you didn't like what you saw? No. I do not. <laughs> I still am kind of like iffy about things like because I think in terms of marketing, the consumer is not really getting the true story. And the people who do have the true story are the people who research. And because I spent pretty much from my younger days to now researching, I'm able to look up and like, wait a minute, that's not really what it means. But in terms of marketing and what people put out, it kind of means it. And I think that's the issue because people aren't really getting the full true story. And I think if they were, they would probably be, be like, uh, you know what, I'm not going to have that. And then if you have enough people saying that, then the people growing our food are kind of forced to change because we're like, we're not going to eat that until you do something about it. But you have to have enough people to have that information and know to be able to make that type of change. So again, it's like something that's like one step at a time. How do you think the US ranks in comparison to other countries? I'm sure you kind of saw a broad range of things when you were doing this study. Yes, I don't want to say like we cut corners, but we kind of do. <laughs> No, I mean, we're to this. Yeah, our listeners, these are the people that want to know about food, right? Yes. So we definitely cut corners. And I think that's why there's people now who are saying like, Oh, you should grow your own food, which of course, that's going to be hard for especially if you live in a city. I'm not saying like everyone needs to like move out the city and start growing their own things in their backyard, because that's not even a good plan for everyone because of how things are set up now and um, currently. But I do think if more people knew about the things going on, that they would try to make the changes so that they're able to be like, you know what, these people aren't buying these things. You know, it's all driven by money. These people aren't buying these things, so we're gonna have to change it. So it's like, if you hit the pockets of the people that are growing most of our food, believe me, they're going to change it. <laughs> but we have to hit them where it hurts. And that is financially. Okay. Is there an example of anything in particular that you've seen change or any sort of movement away from something in the food system that's worked successfully? Maybe both here or somewhere else? Do you mean in terms of like marketing or? Any sort of shifts that, that have happened in, in consumer habits that have been for the better? I think, and this really goes back to in terms of like, I would say food labels, probably there was this huge trend of things being fat free. And so it was like, oh, is this fat-free? This is fat-free. And pretty much, especially in college, you know, because there was a stereotype of like girls have to be a certain weight and stuff. So you have these girls seeing like, oh, it's fat-free, so it's healthy. And unbeknownst to them, when these food companies were taking out the fat, they were hiking up the sugar, they were hiking up the salt. So they're thinking it's healthy because it's fat-free. And in fact, it's not. So I think like once people started to realize, oh, wait, fat-free, that doesn't mean it's healthy, then they actually started changing it. And so you notice there's not there are foods that say fat free. But if you notice, there's not as many foods as saying because before it was like a marketing tool for them. So then people would just be picking up this muffin. <laughs> and they're just like, Oh, this is healthy, because all I saw was fat free. So I think it's that but when people started realizing that the companies are like, oh, okay, they don't believe this anymore. So we don't need to say fat free and big yellow letters on the front of our muffin. Like, <laughs> So it's things like that. I think it's the opposite now. I think everything's like fat filled. It's keto. That's it. <laughs> yes. 
We like did a 180. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's we also do it with sugar. And I've noticed a lot of people are doing it with sugar. And I mean, this is my personal opinion. People using desserts, making them a functional food. Honestly, in my personal opinion, I think that is not a road we should be going down because desserts are treats. They're not supposed to be consumed a lot of times anyway. But by saying it's a functional food and you're adding adaptogens or vitamins and it's ice cream, I do think like the consumer is going to be like, okay, so I could just eat this whole bowl of ice cream and it's good for me. And it's not (laughs) just because you're adding a multivitamin to it. And of course they're marketing it that way. They're just like, oh, this dessert is healthy. Dessert is dessert. It's a treat. Honestly, it shouldn't be um, in high consumption anyway. And then I feel like it should just be that. But there's like a huge trend of dessert being healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think there's a perfect segue into you get into studying sugar. You get into actually diabetes research. So yes. this is clearly an area that drove a lot of what you're doing now with WIP. Yes. So how did you go from studying and taking apart like poison ivy <laughs> to, you know, trying to figure out how to cure one of the biggest diseases in America? Yeah. So after my undergrad, I then went to University of Kentucky and I did my master's in metabolic nutrition. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to basically fuse. So I know more about the plants and now I wanted to learn about nutrition and how those things align. So that's why I decided to do my master's in that. So that's where I kind of went into the nutrition section. And that was actually after I took a trip to Ghana. And that was when still I was in the plant pathology field and the other team that went with us was nutrition. So on that trip, we basically overlapped a lot of the projects and what we talked about in the research. So that was where I was like, oh, I can basically overlap these two and still kind of do what I want to do. So that's when I decided to do my master's in metabolic nutrition. And metabolic nutrition is you're basically doing the study of metabolism. And so you're taking like what you eat and I'm seeing how it affects everything in the body and how it's metabolized down to the micro. (laughs) Okay. So I've got to ask, and everyone's wondering if you are a person that's literally studied the metabolism, are there shortcuts for managing weight? (laughs) So in my opinion, and like based on like the research that I've done, I believe that everybody has their own set point. So when I talk about set point, that's like a weight set point. Okay. And in terms of when people are like, oh, I should be this weight because of the guidelines that have been put out, I think that it is different for everybody. And your set point weight is not going to be the same as the other person's set point weight. I also think depending on what you eat, there are things that affect other people that might not affect you. Mm -hmm. And that's in terms of people will call it allergies or intolerances. I think there's also food intolerances that people may not notice that they have that also contributes to their to the weight that they want to be. So someone can eat, for example, peppers. So they're able to eat peppers. Another person, honestly, they probably can't eat peppers, but because they're not actually showing an adverse effect right away, they're probably like, oh, I'm still able to eat these peppers. So I think people actually need to probably do certain tests to see what they are actually intolerant to. And you can't do that when you're eating like everything all at once because your body is smart. Your body is super smart. People kind of take that for granted. It knows what it needs and it knows what it doesn't need. But so if you are eating things that you're not supposed to, the body will like try to 
override it and do other things to fix that intolerant issue. And I think because when that's happening, that's why people don't know. They're unaware because your body is smart and can do that. But I do think of people have a lot of food tolerances that they don't know they have. And until that is addressed, I think that's when people will be like, oh, I am intolerant to this and I didn't know. And they won't know until they kind of like strip their diet and kind of start introducing other things back. And they're just like, that's why I don't have the headache anymore. It's because, or that's why I had the headache. It's because I actually can't have pineapple and you can't, even though they're like, well, it's healthy. How come I can't have it? It's like your body knows what it wants. It's even certain cravings. If you are craving, for example, strawberries or something like that, or even the things with vitamin C, it's because your body knows that you're probably deficient in a certain nutrient. And so you're craving that just like when someone's thirsty and need water, you're craving that. And your body's like, I'm dehydrated. I need water. I am deficient in that vitamin. So that is why I am craving that particular fruit. Scurvy. That's exactly <laughs> right. The vitamin C deficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just quick tangent. What about vitamin D? Because you get that from the sun. Do you think that sad seasonal effectiveness disorder or anything, you know, you made the joke about winter earlier. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that's craving to be outside could be part of it? Oh, yes. Honestly, most people are vitamin D deficient. And especially African Americans were even more vitamin D deficient. And of course, that's due because of the melanin in our skin. So we have to stay outside longer to even get the same amount of vitamin D as another person who doesn't have as much melanin. But yeah, definitely, even in terms of mental health, they see that there's more mental health issues in places where it gets darker earlier, it's cold, darker for most of the year. We need vitamin D. So it all affects, it definitely affects that. Yeah, as somebody that grew up in the great white north, and it's Toronto, but honestly, like the, the winter, it affects you. It affects you substantially yes. in a way that I had no idea until I was a little older and I went, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And moving from the Sunshine State to New York must have been, oof. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is Definitely a change, especially because in the South, you know, everybody drives everywhere. I mean, that's also why the obesity rate is higher. But <laughs> it's like, but in New York, you know, it's public transportation. There's more people. I mean, of course, the weather, but it's also a place of a lot of innovation too. And things move faster. So if we were looking into like starting your business or something, like that one will teach you real quick. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Jenny. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. If you are, would you mind doing me a favor? Please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Today's podcast is brought to you by Veg Capital. Veg Capital provides early stage capital to companies striving to replace the use of animals from the food system. At Veg Capital, we believe that conventional animal agriculture is an inefficient, cruel, an unsustainable food production system, which is ready for innovation and large-scale disruption. To learn more about the work at Veg Capital, go to vegcapital.co.uk. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we are now at your master's. So how do we go from PhD to founder? So it kind of had to do with the fact that a lot of the people in my family are lactose intolerant. And then when I did more research, I saw that 75% of African-Americans are lactose intolerant. They just don't know it. And I also have a nut allergy. And so basically the ice creams that I saw on the market, they were using nut milks. So that was like almond milk, cashew milk, some even using macadamia milk. And 
those can't be consumed with people with nut allergies. And nut allergy is a huge allergy in the US and globally. Cute. So what I was seeing was like, so we have these ice creams being made with nut milks. And then the other issue was coconut. Coconut is a huge base for dairy-free ice creams. Very huge base. The problem is if you do not like the taste of coconut, you're kind of at a loss. <laughs> Because it has a very strong, very powerful flavor that will overpower any flavor you're trying to do, whether it's like cookies and cream, even mint. I feel like it's just so strong. You don't really enjoy it unless you like coconut. I don't dislike coconut, but I have to be in the mood to have coconut. And sometimes when I want ice cream, I was like, I want that flavor supposed to be, whether it's strawberry, whether it's, you know, mint chocolate chip. You know, I don't want to taste coconut. So I saw that for the majority of the ice creams on the market, they were using coconut and they were using nut milk. So I was looking for ice cream where that was not a popsicle or sorbet, which those are usually fruit based, which is fine. I actually really like sorbet, but I really was missing that creamy treat mm -hmm. that I had as I was, you know, growing up. So I really wanted that and I could not find that. Sorbet is not the same. I don't care what anybody. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I like it, but it has its own like category. Category. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like somebody saying, "You know, I really want chocolate," and they give you vanilla. Yes. Yeah, vanilla is great, but I wanted chocolate. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, how did you go about? I've got an idea. All right, I want to take this thing that's sitting up here in Courtney's head and make it a business. What was that process like for you? So I would have to say it was like a step-by-step -step process. I feel like looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, wow, we did a lot. But when you're in it, it's kind of actually hard to see all the obstacles that you're overcoming and all the research that needs to be done when you're not on the outside looking in. Because like as we're going through it, I'm just like, okay, so step one, I need to create an LLC. So I just stopped at that part and I was like, okay, what do I need to do to create an LLC? And then I did it. So it's like, it's a very stepwise thing that was happening. And of course we had a lot of obstacles along the way, but I think like chewing it in pieces probably helped. And because I came from a research background, I was able to figure things out in a different way because I didn't have to get outside help to be able to do that. And also the other founder who's Zanabu, she's a lawyer. So she has the business and legal experience. So that also helps because we were able to use our skill set to do all these stepwise actions that, you know, flourished into an actual business. Do you remember the first time that it went from being just this concept to like you actually seeing written out somewhere and like how that felt, what that moment was like? Yes, we actually have that even those moments now. It's like as we're, you know, redoing a website or printing out brochures or printing out business cards, we're like, wow, we're legit. Like it's like it, that feeling doesn't really wear off because we're just like, wow, we're able to get to this stage and this, you know, we worked really hard and we've had all these obstacles, but wow, it looks so cool seeing our name printed in that article or printed on that business card like I, that feeling has not gone away from us at all <laughs> it's incredible uh, one of the other founders I spoke to said the first time she had her email address say the company name that was the moment yes we're just still definitely having those moments and we're just like oh my goodness like even like at the vegan women's summit it was like amazing seeing our you know name on your Instagram like all those things are really exciting for us and it's definitely not going to wear off that's amazing but the two of y'all, do you think that there's been any dynamics that you've faced because being women in the space? Uh, you often 
hear about, particularly in the founder survey we did this summer, a lot of people choose a male co-founder because they're worried about being just women. Mm -hmm. Do you think you faced anything? Oh, definitely. So even as a small business, I feel like small businesses already have their own obstacles. But then when you're introducing like gender bias, and also uh, race bias, it becomes even more difficult. And I know like in the Vegan Women's Summit, you guys are always letting people know the facts of like, this is the percentage of, you know, of women. And this is the percentage of black women who are able to get grants and get connected to like certain types of funding. And those numbers are low. Like it is so low. And honestly, when people see that, you would think they would be like, wow, that's why is that an issue? And like, so what you're doing is great because you're hoping once people read that, especially the the um, investors, they're going to be like, okay, so I'm going to make it a commitment that the next business I invest in is going to be a woman business or is going to be like a black owned woman business. So I'm going to show how I am taking steps to correct this issue. That's exactly the point. That's exactly what we're trying to convey. Yeah. So we definitely had to deal with gender bias, race bias. And then like as a small business, for example, in terms of even when we have to work with suppliers. So there could be issue that occurred. That was the mistake of the supplier. But because we're a small business and have not yet reached that level where they think we're worth it to deal with the issue or talk about the problem, it's hell getting to someone who can fix it. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, it's not worth my time. You're small. But they don't realize that we're able, like, you don't know where we're going to be a year from now. So how you treat me now is going to affect if I'm going to even work with you in the future. But because we don't have those large numbers that they're seeing from those larger companies, they're saying like, oh, well, you know, I'll deal with you later. And it's like, we have deadlines too. You made a mistake. We're trying to reach that deadline. And now you're screwing us over. And our money is just as good as that large business. And our time is also valuable. So there is an issue with large companies um, larger companies doing that to small businesses. So that's just a small business that a lot of probably small businesses deal with. And then you have the gender bias. So that's, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing in itself. Because like you said, with that survey with like, they might put a male on their team, they don't want to have to deal with those type of issues. Because a lot of the times, even if it's a supplier, or we're trying to partner with another business, they'll see us and they'll be like, Oh, okay, so who's the owner? Like, when's the owner coming? Like they're already assuming that we're not the owner, that we don't know what we're talking about, that there's some other imaginary person who's male and who's going to walk in and talk about whatever we're supposed to be talking about. So they're already assuming. So you finally say, no, we're the owners. Okay, so there's no male there. Now we're saying like, no, we're the owners. Then on to the next, you automatically see them kind of check out. So of course we see them checking out, but of course we're just like, okay, well, this is an opportunity. We're still going to, you know, discuss what we're here for and how we're, we are a good business. And it's just so hard because to see you talking to a person and they're like completely like checked out, it's annoying. And we always talk about it afterwards. We're like, you saw that the person checked out, right? And it's like, because that person wasn't male, they also automatically think we don't know what we're doing. It's like, forget that I have a PhD. Forget that we have a lawyer on the team who actually reads all the contracts and knows exactly what we're supposed to be signing. It doesn't matter that we don't even get that far because they're just like, 
Ah, you probably don't know what you're talking about. You're new, you're a startup, and I don't want to invest. <laughs> because they don't even give you a chance to explain what your product is, how it's better than the products on the market, because they're already like, I don't want to deal with you because you're a woman. Also, there's age bias as well, which is another thing. Because we look young, they're just like, eh, do you really have that experience? And I feel like they do ask us questions that they would not have asked another person. And it's kind of hard to prove because, of course, it's like not like we have recorded conversations of them talking to other people, but pretty sure we're getting questions that they don't ask other people. And it's almost kind of like we go through extra vetting. And even when we do have the credentials and more experience than the, you know, person over there, it doesn't matter because at that time we're just talking to a brick wall. So. We've had so many founders tell us, obviously women founders, particularly our black founders say, it's like a double duty job. I have to do my literal job. Mm -hmm. And then I also have this extra job that's happening at the same time every single day that's proving myself yes. because I am XYZ. Yes, yes, we totally understand in it. <laughs> And it's something that is very frustrating, but it's also something that if we want to get to the level of success that we see, you just have to keep going. You have to keep going. And then you're kind of hoping that someone finally sees, oh, okay, that is a good product. They know what they're doing. You know, they are able to see things and creatively think that other people have not done yet. So there's probably something special there. But it's like getting people to see that is a giant mountain in itself. How do you climb that mountain? What do, what do you do to, to center yourself after these interactions? Honestly, I just think of how the adversity that we do face is just something that makes us stronger. You have to remember that passion and that drive and the reason why you started in the first place, I feel like. And then we're like, okay, this is why we started. Yes, we might not have been able to get that funding because that person failed to even take away all of the biases and see what our product really is. So we could like shut down, give up, or we'd be like, okay, we remember who this product is really for. There are millions of consumers who would appreciate our product. And no, maybe it's, they're not going to see that next week even the week after or even the next year, but they will. And sooner or later, we're going to be able to talk about all these obstacles and, you know, all these negative things that we faced. How have you funded so far? Uh, we have been self-funded. That's wild. Do you remember the first pitch you ever made to an investor? Yes, I do. And we've actually done even like kind of like food shows, or I guess they're called like food shows or like basically like those food fairs. And I remember that at one particular fair, we were like, oh, we do basically oat milk ice cream. And immediately, and this wasn't even just one person, this was several of the buyers that were there and like the distributors who basically like will take your product. They were like, oh, we already have like oat milk ice cream that's coming. And then they're like, they're like, you probably don't know what it is, but it's like, they're huge. Like they, that's the things they would tell us. And of course I knew who, what they were talking about because I do enough research to know, like I pretty much know every oat milk creator of ice cream out there. So of course I knew that, but the fact that they would check out right when we said that and didn't even give us a chance to explain actually how we're different was mind boggling. I was like, why are you taking the time to go to a food fair or a food show if you're not willing willing to actually listen to the products that are being talked about to you. So it's ridiculous. Like, I don't understand the mindset. It's kind of like they're forced to go there and they're just like, oh yeah. So I could just say we went to the fair and you know, it was just something on their checklist. But the fact that they really do not take the time, they're probably missing on some huge, huge concepts. Yeah. 
For sure. Well, absolutely. You look at the freezer aisle and there's so many dairy ice creams. Like, there's a million different ones and they're yeah. all getting bought. Yes. Yeah. So, so you've been self-funded so far. What's your scale up plan? So right now, this month, we are introducing nationwide shipping. So right now we've done soft serve primarily at our retail store. Our retail store is actually in New York. We actually started in Brooklyn in a food hall just to see like if people were into the oat milk soft serve concept. So we started that in a little stall. And then because it was so popular, we're like, okay, we have done well here. Let's open up our own brick and mortar and see where it goes from there. So that's what we did. We actually opened up the end of February and that's when COVID hit. <laughs> and so <laughs> we finally opened up and we were forced to shut down. <laughs> By because we were mandated by the government to shut down, except for you know food businesses that had delivery at that time. Because we just opened up, we didn't have delivery available yet, so we had to quickly pivot. And we're like, okay, what can we offer for delivery? Because right now we had soft serve, and soft serves the type of item where it melts really quickly, and it's something that really needs to be enjoyed right away. Like because that is an in-store product, so immediately we had to figure out okay, how are we going to do this delivery? So we went back to the drawing board and was like, okay, we need to create products that are delivery friendly. And so that's when we came out with our oat milk saucer truffles. Pretty much they're like bite-sized ice cream. They look exactly like chocolate truffles. And we were like, okay, this is what we can use to have local delivery that way we actually have some type of income. And at the same time, we're also bringing awareness to our brand. Because not only were we dealing with the pandemic, but because we were still kind of new, we also have to get over that hurdle of we are still new. So when people go online, we need to make sure that they're still willing to try us because we notice a lot of people will buy what they're familiar with or only what they're familiar with because they haven't tried you yet. So that was like the other hurdle. So, you know, we went to social media. We're like, OK, here's these old milk soft serve truffles. And that's how we started doing the local delivery. So it's kind of like when we're pushing a corner or push against a wall, it's like that's when like the creative thinking has to come out. And we're just like, OK, what can we do now? Because we cannot not be open. Yeah. Well, first off, that sounds delicious. <laughs> I really I want to try an ice cream truffle. Uh, secondly, you know, one of the themes that we talked about a lot with our founders is the fact that in times of scarcity and downturn, that's when the best innovations come about. Yes. It, historically speaking, it's when some of the most exciting companies on the planet have been created. Yes, exactly. So even now, like with this nationwide shipping, we weren't going to do this this year. It's just because of the quarantine. We're like, oh, we have to go another quarantine. We want people to be able to still buy our product. And so everything has kind of gotten pushed up the debut meter, I guess, or debut scale, which so we just pivot and kind of go with the flow because if you're not flexible, and I think that is really important as an entrepreneur, you have to be flexible because if you are trying to follow this like tight schedule, tight deadline, it's not going to work. You're going to be frustrated and you're going to want to give up. It's <laughs> plain and simple. <laughs> so are you the flexible one? Is your co-founder the flexible? Or are you both? We're both flexible, actually, which is really good. Yeah, we're definitely both flexible. And we play off of each other very well. 
Yeah, we often, we meet these like co-founding teams every now and then where one of them is like very much that analytical person and the other one is the creative one that kind mm -hmm. of pulls this one and this one kind of keeps the other one regimented. It's very funny. Yeah, I think for us, because we both have like research backgrounds, we're both actually very analytical. And then the creativity, I'm guessing we just got from genetics or something or like maybe environment. But I know my mom is very creative. So that's probably where I get that from. But yeah, we both are definitely very flexible and you have to be or you're not going to survive. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this is one of my favorite questions. As a founder, what is the biggest mistake that you have made and what did you learn from it? Let's see. That's a hard one. I'm trying to think. The only reason I'm saying that's hard, it's because usually we face so many obstacles. We're just like, oh, okay, so that happened. And then we kind of like just try to figure it out. So I honestly don't know if there's something so large where that was a huge issue. I'm trying to think like, I mean, there's like little things, but I'm trying to think of something that was like that detrimental. And so far, nothing has been that detrimental where it has affected us. Well, what is something that you wish that you had known when you started that you know now? I would probably say in terms of our product, I feel like people are like, oh, you need to tell people about your product because you want feedback. I think that depending on what your product is, I would take that with a grain of salt. Because even at the video summit, I saw some people posting about how their recipe or how something they were doing got stolen. So I think in terms of our things, because we were like involved in like many food shows, I think I would probably have kept some things closer to the chest because we have had it, we've experienced where, and we found out later, this company was, there's a very large, successful company. We were at a food show and we actually had our product out there and they're like, what are the ingredients? And we were like, oh, okay. So we basically, we didn't actually tell them the ingredients because something kind of like was a red flag. I was like, why are they asking that? Because it's a very specific question. Um, they're like, oh, what are the ingredients? I see they're not listed here. So I basically told them like basically what the main ingredients are. And they were like, okay. And then that was the first round. Second round, probably like an hour later, another person came. Same, but they ended up being with the same company, but we didn't know that. And they asked the same question. And I was like, this is weird. Because they were asking very specific questions that probably average consumer would not ask. So we still gave them some information. If, of course, it wasn't like the proprietary part. But I think in terms of if you have a proprietary recipe or if you have a proprietary process, you need to make sure that whoever you're telling is trustworthy for sure. Because I know people are like, oh, if you if you keep ideas to yourself and don't share them with others, how do you expect to grow? And Everyone expects it to be some type of like kumbaya moment. And I'm like, I don't know. And I see like posts like that. And I'm like, I think it depends on the product and the situation because we do know people where their product has gotten stolen. They're like the product recipe has gotten stolen. So it's not as easy as like, oh, you need to tell people of your idea because it's all about execution. And I'm like, mm, I was like, there are definitely people out there who are going to small businesses, probably like, oh, I could do A, B, C, D. And then you find out later that once they have the information they want, they're gone. So I think it's more that. So from that experience, I guess it wasn't really a mistake, but I probably would have kept more information about it with us if I knew, because we found out later that it was a very successful ice cream company. And they were probably trying to work on changing their recipe because their recipe sucks. <laughs> it's on the market now. But of course, if you don't try a thing that's better, 
you're probably thinking that all of them taste like this. So it's not until you try the other product that you're like, oh my gosh, what have I been eating? Like you don't actually notice until you actually try that better product. So of course their products on the market, we didn't give them enough information clearly for them to change it that much. But, you know, we're just like, oh, wow. And we actually found out by accident who it was. Okay. This is yeah. not the first time I've heard this. Yes. That's a- <laughs> so it's unfortunate. And like, thank God, like we, since our like red flag meter kind of went up on our head, like we didn't give them too much information, but still, honestly, I wouldn't have given them any information at all. Yeah. So I would say that's probably like one of the ones, if I knew better, I'd keep things more close to the chest until you kind of know that person better, or you know who you're speaking to, because that can make or break your whole company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a cheese, a vegan cheese shop down in LA, uh, Vermage, very famous one. He, I think he did uh, one of the royal weddings. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he has the most clever way to do it. He puts up a list in his shop that says the cheese may contain, and it lists like 300 different things that could potentially be it. <laughs> so depending on the flavor, could contain one of these. Yeah. <laughs> you did, there's not a chance you could try to figure out what on earth makes those cheese. What it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, so for those that are joining that are in the vegan space and are really looking to build like a more compassionate future, I'd love to know what your pitch to them as to why, you know, WIPT is really going to help build that world. And then for those that are joining that aren't at all in the vegan space, why WIPT is going to help them. In terms of just like our product in general? Yeah. What's the vision? How do you sell it to a vegan and a non-vegan? Yes. So I think the very special, unique thing about our product is that you will not miss the normal dairy ice creams that are on the shelf right now. The competitors that are on the market, the product is either icy, which I think they are working on that because I have seen some brands where the iciness is an issue and it's actually pretty creamy, but you still have the issue of the base, which is either made with nuts or coconut. And that's a huge issue because all these allergies, people are also like developing allergies that they didn't even know they had. And our product solves that. And then it solves that if a person who is not vegan tried it side by side with the normal dairy ice cream that they're used to, they wouldn't know the difference. And I think that's definitely what's missing because there are brands on the market now that say that, oh, you can't tell that this is not dairy, but it's not true. (laughs) It's not true. And we actually have had people taste test and we line everything up and we line it with the normal dairy ice creams and with the competitors on the market. And they can tell the ones that are saying that you can actually tell. Cause so there's either like a weird aftertaste, creaminess is okay, but it's either coconut taste or an aftertaste if they're using a different product. And so our product solves that. And our product also, because it's not just for a form of hard pints, because it can be used for soft serve, we're also solving an issue. Like if someone does have a favorite fast food restaurant to go to, because we hopefully will be able to sell to these business. We're going to be able to offer, they can offer plant-based desserts that they normally don't have. So for example, a lot, you know, McDonald's is like, of course, one of the most popular fast food restaurants and people um, get their soft serve cones. So there's also a joke that their machine's always broken, but, <laughs> um, but they have a soft serve cone. Of course, that's dairy ice cream. So for us to be able to sell to those businesses and people are able to have the ice cream and not even notice that the product is actually plant-based or they actually probably say, wait, this tastes better. And they don't know. That's what our product does. And we've had consumers come into our store, been there several times, and that's the consensus. They're just like, I didn't know. And that is our key. Our key is 
to make sure that the people who are going to still consume dairy, because you're, this is not going to happen overnight. Like people are either transitioning to the plant-based lifestyle right now, or they're not. And that's going to take time, but you still want to target the people who have not done that yet, because you're hoping that your product, at least because you give them a glimpse of how plant-based food can actually taste just as good, if not better, that they'll probably like, okay, I like this. So now I will actually try this other vegan cheese because this was actually better than I thought. And it's better than the dairy things I'm eating now. So our goal is really that to actually get people to transition to the plant-based lifestyle because of our product. Is McDonald's the white whale? Is the vegan McFlurry? Is that what we're going for? Is that how we know that we've just made it? Yeah, like vegan, Dairy Queen, McFlurry, anything. Yes, of course, because people are used to that. And that's probably what people grew up on. And we fill that void. Yeah. We fill the void for the people who already have gone vegan and are living the plant-based lifestyle. But again, our target market is really the people who are not because that's the people that you need to change. We know that the people living the plant-based lifestyle and are vegan, they do their research because they're used to going to places and be like, okay, what's vegan? <laughs> and they're usually offered like maybe two options. So when people come to our shop, the people who are vegan, a lot of times they're just like, okay, which ones are vegan? And we're like, oh, everything is vegan here. And they like, it's so funny because they become overwhelmed. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> they're so overwhelmed because they're so used to going to places where they have like two options. So they're just like standing there trying to look at our menu. But it's really like a delight to see that we're overwhelming them in a good way. It's an Alice in Wonderland moment. And it's because we grew up eating salad and fries. <laughs> that's, that's it. Salad and fries diet, which I don't think you would approve <laughs> yep. of with the amount of sugar and sodium. Awesome. Well, Carney, it has been amazing to talk to you and, and to hear about your journey to founding what I hope is going to be my first vegan McFlurry. Yes, we have to send you some of our hard pints or truffles too. Well, you know, I will send you the address and I look forward to it. Yes, of course. Well, great chatting with you and we look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for today's Pathfinders podcast. I hope you'll rate and subscribe to follow more conversations like today. If you want to learn more about how to get involved with VWS, please check out veganwomensummit.com or follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram with at Vegan Women's Summit and on Twitter with at Veg Women's Summit. Don't worry, you can find the links in the show notes. We're building a global community of women dedicated to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Powered by CEOs, investors, celebrities, Olympians, and more, our events and media platform reaches thousands of women every day across six continents. We'd love your support. You can reach out to sponsor this podcast and more at veganwomensummit.com slash sponsors. See you next time.